I was in the very top of Greenland this summer at 83 degrees north. You cannot go any further on land on Earth. Uh, but at midnight, it was 19.8 degrees Celsius. It was almost tropical degrees. Tropical temperatures? In the Arctic? Well, at least that was the case in the summer of 2020. I think for us who live outside the Arctic, it's hard to imagine the uh, immensity of the changes to the physical surroundings of, of the people who live in the North. And you cannot imagine really, the amount of changes this causes to plant life, animal life, uh, the amount of ice or the lack of ice uh, on the sea, etc., uh, etc., et the amount of participation, snow, water from above, everything is changing, and it's changing three times as fast as in the rest of the world. So the climate changes that we're talking about in the south have already occurred in the north. Martin Breum is a Danish journalist. He's been watching what's happening in the Arctic region for years. He's seen the ice melt, the flora and fauna change, and major alterations to the Arctic way of life. Inhabitants of Greenland and the northernmost parts of the Nordics have first-hand experience with climate change. This is one of the reasons why the Nordic countries are increasing their climate action. And it's also the reason why the Nordics are cooperating with others to achieve the same goal. But it's not always a rosy picture. Financial and geopolitical interest in the Arctic can often get in the way of significant progress. In this episode, we're assessing efforts to save the Arctic before it's too late. I'm Afton Halloran, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. I'm absolutely sure that people in Greenland are absolutely sure that the climate change is taking place. And they also agree that it is a global problem. There has been uh, surveys that have shown very clearly that that's the case. I think in terms of the effect on people's life in Greenland, it is more diverse. Um, some people see the changes as uh, fortunate and, and advantageous, and others see the changes as problematic and, and sad. So that is, of course, a matter of opinion, but that they are there is, is an objective fact. This is Minik Wolsing. He was born in Greenland in the late 1950s. Today, he's a professor of geobiology at the University of Copenhagen. He knows all too well that life in Greenland is changing. Where people see most of it is in the warmer summers, the wetter summers, and also in the lack of sea ice during the winter. And particularly the loss of sea ice have uh, great uh, cultural implications because uh, uh, many people in our part of the world here would think that sea ice is an impediment to movement. But traditionally in Greenland, sea ice was when um, all the uh, there's the only part of the year where you had a flat road to drive on on a dog sled or even in a car, uh, because uh, no two places in Greenland are connected by road. But during the winter, when the sea ice uh, settled, uh, actually everywhere, every place were connected uh, by a nice flat surface. So 
uh, over the past uh, 10 years or so, 10, 15 years, sea ice has been diminishing. And now even in northern part of West Greenland, you don't have solid sea ice during the winter. So that has meant uh, enormous change in, in, in culture. And um, it has basically left uh, dog sledding uh, uh, as a as a as a outdated uh, technology, which is of course has, has big uh, cultural uh, and identity implications. What the reduction in sea ice also means is that you can sail to most navigation, uh, most places now, and destinations. You can sail to most destinations, and uh, you can supply uh, settlements during the winter, and you can take goods out during the winter. Uh, so that means that um, actually some places in North Greenland uh, have uh, thriving uh, fishing uh, now, uh, where before they were much more dependent on, on, on hunting uh, sea mammals. But it also means that uh, the technologies that people used to do the fishing has changed from being uh, fishing from the ice to uh, fishing uh, long line fishery or, or even trawlers also during the winter. Global warming has had a major impact on Greenland, which has one of the largest ice sheets on Earth. But the fact is that these changes are also occurring in other countries in the Arctic Circle, like Finland and Norway. Ilana Wilson-Rowe is joining us from Norway. She's a professor at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. Concern for the climate is you know, absolutely present, and we've had a lot of really important um, scientific research done on what the impacts are likely to be, and, and people in the North are already noticing these impacts in their day-to-day lives or in the changing of the seasons and so on. So there's certainly a concern for climate change and how it's going to impact both on livelihoods and also on kind of activities that are a source of cultural continuity for Indigenous peoples and other local communities in the North. So, for example, you have a concern in, you know, for changed animal migration patterns in um, communities and societies that are built up around marine mammal hunting, for example, and also changing animal stock health due to the impacts of climate change, including changing sea ice patterns. Or, for example, in northern Norway, we have this concern for how fish stocks may migrate or change due to climate change, perhaps moving further north, and that will have certainly restructure the Norwegian coastal economies of sustainable fishing. As we'll soon find out, people living in Greenland and northern Norway are not the only ones concerned with a warming Arctic region. In fact, we should all be concerned. Our actions further south have a massive impact on the climate and have severe consequences on Arctic ecosystems. But paradoxically, many of us in the South see opportunities in the Arctic for speeding up the green transition worldwide. This could be through, say, mining for rare raw materials that are needed for electric cars, or by establishing massive wind farms in remote areas. And Alana is quick to point out that this creates a dilemma for communities in the Arctic. Of course, the people living in the Arctic are aware of climate change impacts from the broad research agenda, also from their own, from indigenous knowledge, from their own observations and use of the land. But at the same time, there is a concern that the solutions to climate change, which really the green shift could be realized in many places and in many parts of the world, that the Arctic, simply because of its its population density, which is lower than other parts of the world and or other also the southern parts of Arctic countries, 
and also different forms of land use that haven't left the same imprint but are still on the physical landscape but are still require these large um, undisturbed areas will lend themselves too easily to our imaginations of where the green solutions can be placed. The dilemma is clear. The fulfillment of global needs comes at a cost to the Arctic environment. And of course, this gets political. Climate change is not only a physical phenomena that people experience, it's also political processes that are very, very um, advanced already and has been for a long time. In Greenland, we saw earlier this year a very complex and very controversial political process The Greenland government basically stopped mining or the development of a mine in South Greenland. This mine contains one of the largest deposits on Earth of rare earths, minerals that are crucially necessary for the green transition worldwide. But the Greenland government stopped this mine uh, basically forever because they were afraid of the environmental impact, uh, to put it shortly. Uh, so it's not a, a it's not a very easy um, dilemma like climate change is is posing to the politicians, to the decision makers, and society, societies in the north. They, it may seem easy solutions when we look at it from the south. Of course, they should mine this huge deposit of rare earths that we need so badly for windmills and electrical cars and so forth. But in the local context, it didn't make any sense. Um, so Ilana's point is really important here that we should not uh, necessarily assume that what looks logical in a climate sense from the south would necessarily uh, also look uh, equally logical uh, seen from the north. While Greenland is the world's largest island, it's small in terms of population, with only 57,000 inhabitants. And that number doesn't carry much political weight globally. Being a small country with a very small population, uh, a huge geography, but also a very small economy, you're obviously vulnerable and you are, let's say, eager to make the right decisions for yourself. Uh, And whenever there is global pressure, whether it's climate change or political economic pressure from outside, uh, this puts tremendous stress on decision makers in the Arctic, in, in small countries, we know that in Denmark already, but we hardly, uh, we, we often forget that we are a small country and we look at Greenland and the Faroe Islands and we think they're very small countries. Others think that we in Denmark are very small, but now we look at Greenland and there's only 57,000 people there. So obviously it's a very small economy. They have to make very wise decisions. Not, they don't have a room for very many mistakes. And their very, very existence is threatened. We talked a little about fish before. 95% of the revenue that, uh, the export revenue that Greenland makes is from fish and seafood in general. So if the migration patterns of the, uh, the, the animals, the fish and the shrimp and so forth, if the migration patterns change uh, radically, this could devastate Uh, the Greenland economy and thereby the livelihood of the entire Greenlandic nation. So obviously, they're under some very heavy pressures. uh, And when the market changes in China, they cannot export uh, their fish and shrimp to an important market like that. Or when the ferries are blocked for political reasons from from selling their fish uh, in in the European 
community. Well, those are serious issues uh, for those two small communities. So just how significant are foreign interests in the Arctic region? Seen from the Nordic uh, countries, from our angle, uh, it's obvious that we're looking at great power rivalry in the Arctic. Uh, It's China, it's Russia, it's uh, the U.S., that are positioning themselves for a new future. For the first time in human history, a whole new ocean is opening for human traffic. It's never happened before. Uh, It has caused a global dynamic uh, that everybody is interested in for very legitimate reasons, different reasons, but they're all legitimate in my mind. Uh, So it's a question of whether or not these uh, great powers will be able to, let's say, Uh, pursue their interest to the degree that satisfies their needs and also their needs for security, or whether this will lead uh, to to conflict that none of us uh, and none of them are actually asking for. Um, That is, I think, the very simple uh, way of, of putting it. And then the question, of course, is, as Nordics, how can we contribute uh, to the maintenance of, of peace and, and a sustainable approach uh, to exploitation of riches and, and the well-being of the people who already live in the Arctic. That has been a challenge for some time, uh, but it is uh, getting more challenging uh, day by day. Uh, and this is for security reasons, in my mind. Uh, the, the patterns of, of Russia and the U.S. It's in, in particular are, in my mind, uh, getting to a point where we should all be worried. Um, I'm not talking of immediate uh, risks of crisis, but but I see, from my point as a journalist, I think there is a lack of recognition by the Nordic governments of the escalation of military power and the risk of unwanted uh, clashes, accidents uh, or actual um, rising tension and and eventually uh, conflict in the Arctic. I think we should simply speak out and say there is now so much uh, military attention, there's so much military buildup in the Arctic, and I'm talking of the very Arctic, and I think Norway in particular uh, has a crucial role uh, in this uh, mathematics of of mobilizing military forces. and I simply think we should speak more about it. I think we should write about it. I think we should talk about it. And I think we should not look at it only from a one point, from a Western uh, point and say, oh, we need more military up there because the Russians already have so much. That's a much too simplified approach. We need to simply recognize that this has gotten to a point where everybody should be worried, uh, including the Russians and the Americans. What is it exactly that global superpowers want from the Arctic region? Well, if you look at the very, very core national interest of the three main powers that we're talking about, China, Russia, and the U.S., um, one has to understand that they're extremely different. Okay, so let's take them one by one. Russia first. For Russia, this is a matter of uh, their economic safety uh, their, their well-being in the future. This is where a very large portion of the natural resources of Russia are. This is where they are putting their money. This is where they are expecting to develop uh, the, the welfare of the Russian state in the future. 
uh, the, already a very large percentage of their export revenue is derived from, from raw materials in the Arctic, oil, gas, minerals. Uh, they're expecting a lot from shipping in the Arctic now that the sea ice is receding, uh, the Northeast Passage uh, is open for traffic, and they're expecting a whole lot uh, from that region. I think for people non-Russians, it's hard to understand how important the Arctic has always been for Russia and how important it is again to Russia today. Look at the map and you will understand a lot of what we're talking about here in an instant. So again, political geography is back. Look at the map and you understand the issue. Because to Russia, this is, this is crucial. This is core. This is the future safety of the nation. It's economic sustainability in the future. And then the USA. To the US, it's simply a question of national security. They're not very concerned with any minerals or oil or gas in the, in the Arctic. It's simply they feel threatened in a way they have never experienced from the North before. There is no ice to protect them. Russia is militarizing their part of the Arctic for reasons uh, that the Russians can explain in one way and the Americans will explain in another. The Russians now have bases closer to North America than ever before. And the Americans simply, from a military security point of view, very, very, let's say, old school, think they are seeing a new threat. And they want to protect themselves with all their might. So they're developing new weaponry. They're putting uh, military into bases in North Norway, close to Russia. They're militarizing Greenland probably very soon. They're looking at the Fair Islands, etc., etc., and what about China? For China, it's a matter of positioning themselves uh, for raw materials, for sh future shipping options, uh, for security of, uh, of let's say, sustainable uh, deliveries of, of oil, gas, minerals uh, for their industry and their welfare in the, in the future. And it's a matter of following the climate changes that are taking place in the Arctic because they will, they're already affecting China's uh, way of living, it's, it's affecting their agriculture in the north of China, and it will eventually affect uh, all of the major uh, Chinese cities that are close to the coastline when the seawater rises as the ice in Greenland melts. With so many conflicting interests at stake, it would make sense to have a forum to enhance cooperation, coordination, and interaction among the Arctic states. And luckily there is. The Arctic Council. The council was established in 1996, just a few years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, when tensions between the Western world and the former Soviet Union began to thaw. And collaboration between the member states still works very well to this day. I think it's important to keep in mind that some of the interests, security interests that are coming to the fore today have been there for a while. They've been there a long, there's always been a NATO-Russia security divide. There's been, at the same time as the Arctic cooperation has really blossomed. But I think there's certainly an awareness today that the, you know, the 1990s were certainly not a new normal. It was more of a period of exceptionalism in, in global relations. And I think what's very interesting about the Arctic cooperation is that it was sort of made in this particular post-Cold War moment, you know, and it really, a good deal of it came from an initiative from the Soviet Union or, and 
itself about the importance of cooperating across borders to address environmental challenges, and also through the very active um, advocacy of indigenous people's organizations, pointing to the fact that they have border crossing a national, they have border crossing sovereignties, they have a need for interaction, a need for movement across large tracts of space for, for their um, culturally significant economic activities and so on. And I think all of those things have continued to matter today. What we see is that these same factors, the interconnected ecosystem, the advocacy of indigenous people's organizations, have acted in some ways as a, a counterweight for um, mitigating some of the potential spillover from, from conflict elsewhere. And I think on the whole, it's also interesting to keep in mind is that the Arctic states themselves in general prefer a regional frame for the politics of the region. So their ability to cooperate, including, for example, issuing the Ilulisat Declaration in 2008, has been essential to maintaining, giving weight to the, the claim that they are able to use international law to govern the region peacefully. Alana emphasizes that there's a tradition of constructive dialogue between the Nordic countries and Russia. Diplomatic lines are still open, despite the frozen cooperation between NATO and Russia since the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And I think that also the Nordic countries, maybe in particular Norway and, and Finland, have an interesting experience of trying to be part of larger blocs. Like for Norway, this is NATO and a very close relationship to the EU. And also for Finland as an EU member. But at the same time, having in some fields quite extensive bilateral relationships with Russia on topics that are of real economic and socio-political and even security political significance. So, for example, in Norway, the experience of the bilateral cooperation in the Fisheries Commission in the Barents, Barents Sea, or some, you know, for that there's this hotline between the, the kind of Norwegian command in northern Norway and the, the head of the northern fleet in Russia. Some of these more informal measures are going to be very important going forward in an atmosphere where, in general, the lines are no, no normalization of security relations after the annexation of Crimea. Yet at the same point, I think there's a widespread agreement about the importance of open communication, confidence-building measures to the extent possible to avoid the scenarios of, for example, unintended acts or accidents that could escalate in an environment in which communication and transparency is low, which I think is what we do have today. Low transparency, low levels of communication across the NATO-Russia divide. So there's a growing interest in what sorts of dialogues could take place, or even informal dialogues could take place, and perhaps somewhat outside the military sphere. So I think the cooperation that was established after Crimea, although it had been under development for a while, in the Coast Guard, the Arctic Coast Guards, is a really important example of the kinds of perhaps more slightly more soft security forums that can establish patterns or channels of communication that may be very important as we go forward to a, a more open, busy, but still vast and difficult to navigate Arctic. Martin also emphasizes the importance of dialogue. I think it, it's very important to play attention to what analysts like Ilana say when, when they stress the uh, the well-being of the collaborative structures in the Arctic. There is a pattern of deep-seated collaboration in the Arctic 
uh, within the Arctic Council, which also China subscribes to as an observer member. Uh, there is a precedence for avoiding, let's say, overly um, antagonistic rhetorics when we talk about regional issues in the Arctic, no matter who speaks. There is a tradition for inclusion of the Arctic peoples. Um, so there is a strong um, reason, there are strong reasons to believe that the Arctic as such will not be cause of conflict. Uh, there is great power rivalry, certainly, and it is increasing precisely as Ilana so, so, so greatly described it. Uh, the rhetoric is sometimes hard, but I think it's very important for us who follow events um, to also play the role, uh, let's say, in our communities uh, that, uh, of, of storytellers who, who, who insist on the nuances. We need to understand the interest of the parties. We need to understand and also not overestimate the substance uh, of, of the discussions in the Arctic. It's not all that important to any of the powers there. The resources in the Arctic are already divided. They're already positioned beyond, let's say, on the, on the safe side of national boundaries. So it's not as if the major powers are fighting over anything of substance in the Arctic. That's very, very important to understand. It's very hard to tell uh, to our communities in the South because everybody thinks that they're fighting over something that we don't understand, but they're certainly fighting over something because they wouldn't be fighting over nothing. Uh, but, and, and, and this seems almost a laughing matter, um, but it's very important for us to keep explaining that to more and more people because most people don't understand that. So what does the future hold for the Arctic region? I would like to see the broad global interest in the Arctic region being manifested in real action within um, the climate change framework. I think other countries like China, for example, could do, be doing a lot more to eliminate black carbon, which is a direct risk to the Arctic. And, um, and I hope to see both the Arctic countries maybe working more together to be ambitious within the, the global climate regime, but also non-Arctic countries showing, really putting weight on their, their care for the region by acting to mitigate global climate change. For Minik, the local population should take the lead in determining their future. I definitely think that there has been a tendency to look at Greenland as a, as a symbol of uh, climate change and the disasters that come from climate change rather than as a, a part of the solution. And I think that Greenland has a lot to offer. And I think that once the, the rest of the Nordics and, 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 and the world as such should really start to, uh, to have a dialogue with Greenland about where uh, those resources, knowledge, whatever it could be, but, but how Greenland can play into a solution solutions because uh, clearly there's a very large opportunity for that and that would be good for Greenland and it'll be good for the world and I think Greenland more than anything when Greenland talk independence or autonomy I think more it is recognition and 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 not being a client uh, that is the issue so I think when Greenland can derive uh, soft power from solving global problems I think that that'd be a very good thing for for all parts. So what kind of actions need to be taken in the Arctic in the near future? Is there anything that you and I 
people who don't live in the Arctic region can do to help? This is Alana. I think it's a great question because on most of, I think, our broad global challenges today, climate change amongst them, our real thing to fight is this sort of defeatism or resignation rather than denial. There aren't many people, for example, who go around denying that climate change is is happening, but there are many of us who feel a bit defeated or overwhelmed by the magnitude of the, the problem. And of course, I think, you know, there are lots of good reasons to to care about about the Arctic and what happens there. But I think in some ways, without saying that those, we should all care about all parts of the world, but I think also some of the concern and care can be channeled back into the places we live, that part of the, we know that the, the green transition is going to require changes in how we live and how we use land and what our landscape looks like, that we might have to tolerate a, a wind farm outside of a popular cabin area in southern Norway, rather than seeking to outsource all of them to what one might say is less populated northern Norway, even though those lands are actively used. So I think I would encourage people interested in learning more or seeking to do something for the Arctic to really invest themselves in, into thinking about the Arctic as a real and very varied place. There are many Arctics, um, different kinds of communities and peoples who live there. And every place in the Arctic is just as complicated politically um, and economically as other places in the world that you might know know better. So on the whole, I would say, to, you know, seek to kind of identify and support in any way possible what you might be much more of a local and tailored um, approach to addressing Arctic challenges. I think one of our big issues with how we've approached the Arctic is it's been through this sort of almost like a utopian one-stop shop for solutions for all Arctic challenges, that the future is either going to be all oil and gas or it's going to be all green energy or it's going to all be a big server park for Amazon or something like that. But in reality, the Arctic is complicated. It It is um, differentiated and it is very important to realize it's very, it's populated both by local communities and by indigenous peoples who have their own um, uh, rights to, to sovereignty and self-determination in the Arctic. So I guess on the whole, I'd also say, you know, think through and support the how you can also address global climate change more broadly, and perhaps maybe especially where you are. And let's hear from Martin. I think everybody, including politicians in the Nordic countries, but everybody who takes an interest, the slightest interest in the Arctic, should buy a map of the Arctic and put it on a wall at home. Because we need to understand the world in a way we haven't done before. The Arctic is now part and parcel of the rest of the world. It's not a part of the periphery of the world. Traffic, culture, economics, climate change, everything is happening very, very rapidly in the Arctic. And we need to know this region better. And we need to understand the connections uh, and the geography of that uh, region much better than we have done so far. Where is the screw in your globe, if you ever had one of those standing on a table at home? The screw is right at the North Pole because nobody cared about that part of the world. That has to change. We have to realize that the Arctic is now a very, very dynamic and very important part of the world. So buy a map of the Arctic. You may not have seen a map of the Arctic ever in your life, but they are available and put it on the wall. 
while many of us will never set foot in the Arctic, this region is significant to each and every one of us. And it's not just because it's home to the iconic polar bear. It's because it helps to keep our world's climate in balance. Listening to Martin, Minik and Elena, I'm reassured that there will be no war over the Arctic in the near future, not at least because of the mechanisms for dialogue that are already in place. But without significant climate action, the world will continue to feel the effects of a warming Arctic, rising sea levels, changes in climate and precipitation patterns, increasing severe weather events. That's not the future I want. What about you? Be sure to follow Nordic Talks on Instagram and LinkedIn. You'll get the latest information on upcoming events, new podcast episodes, and much more. I'm Afton Halloran. Thanks for listening.